Welcome to this episode of the Elite Advisor Blueprint Podcast with your host, Brad Johnson. Brad's the VP of Advisor Development at Advisors Excel, the largest independent insurance brokerage company in the U.S. He's also a regular contributor to Investment News, The Wall Street Journal, and other industry publications. Welcome to the Elite Advisor Blueprint, the podcast for world-class financial advisors. My name is Brad Johnson, and I'm the VP of Advisor Development at Advisors Excel. And it's my goal to distill the best ideas and advice from top thought leaders and apply it to the world of independent financial advising. During this conversation, we had a first ever on the show. And I've got to say it was a bucket list moment as it included tasting a couple of great wines with one of the foremost wine experts in the world, Dylan Proctor. For those unfamiliar, he's currently the winemaking ambassador for Penfolds Americas. Yes, that Penfolds, the famous Australian winery that produces one of the most iconic bottles in the world, Penfolds Grange. Dylan's been recognized as Wine Enthusiast Magazine's 40 Under 40 Tastemakers and has been featured in publications like Wine Spectator, The Tasting Panel, The New York Times, and The Huffington Post. How our paths originally crossed was the fact that he was also featured in one of my favorite documentaries of all time, the internationally acclaimed Psalm, directed by our mutual friend, Jason Wise. You'll hear plenty about the movie during our conversation, but do yourself a favor. If you love wine or just an incredible story, go watch this movie. My guess is it will blow your mind like it did mine the first time I watched it. Check out the show notes for a link. Here are just a few of the topics Dylan and I covered. We get into Wine Tasting 101 for financial advisors. Basically, how to order and taste wine without the fear of looking like a fool in front of your clients. For me, and I'm guessing you all can relate, it seems the more I learn about wine, the more I realize how much I actually don't know. Thankfully, Dylan knows how to simplify the complex, and he provides some fun commentary for overcoming the intimidating and oftentimes confusing world of wine. Next, Dylan shares his top tips for hosting incredible wine events. You'll learn how to blow your clients away with an expert wine vocabulary, some outside-of-the-box wine tasting games, and actually knowing how to properly grid, aka taste a wine. For you advisors out there who host wine events for your clients or have always wanted to, this part of the conversation is definitely going to give you some fresh ideas for tailoring a unique event for the ultra high net worth. From there, as Dylan is one of the best dressed dudes I've ever met, I couldn't help but ask him why it matters and what it's done for his persona in the wine business. He shares some incredible insights here on not only how you'll be perceived by others, but how this can impact you internally as well and how that translates to financial services. Lastly, I wasn't even planning on getting into this. I'll blame it on the wine. But Dylan and I share a story of how a random request for Keystone Light, of all things, at the French Laundry led to an incredible lesson where they created the ultimate client experience for us. And for those of you who don't believe they'd actually serve you Keystone Light at one of the finest restaurants in the world, I posted pictures from that evening to prove it. It's in the show notes. Go check it out. Okay, before we get to the show, if this episode inspires you to host your own wine events, we've put together a document that I like to call Hosting Your Own Wine Events 101 for Financial Advisors. Think of it like a to-do list slash checklist slash timeline on everything required to host a great wine tasting. Literally everything. It's available for download right at the top of the show notes at bradleyjohnson.com forward slash 31. That's 31. You can also find links to everything else we've mentioned there too. Books, people discussed, random photos from our night of the French laundry, and everything else from the show. So that's it. As always, thanks for listening. And without further delay, my conversation with Delenn Proctor. 
Welcome to this episode of the Elite Advisor Blueprint Podcast. This could be the most excited I've ever been for a Blueprint interview as I have Dylan Proctor, wine expert and technical title, winemaking ambassador for Pinfolds of the Americas. So welcome to the show, Dylan. Glad to have you, man. Hey, thanks a lot, Brad. Really appreciate it. Been looking forward to this as well. Well, you know, the setting isn't quite as amazing as it was last time when we were roaming around. I think we we're in Sonoma, Napa. I don't remember where all we were out in California, but uh, sampling some nice wine. But the good news is, first on the show, we're going to sample some wine here today as well. So being a podcast for financial advisors, a lot of our clients drink a lot of wine. A lot of them host a lot of wine events for their clients. And you happen to be one of the foremost experts in the world as far as wine in general. So I just want to dig right in. We're going to sample some wine. But I figured before we get started, I find some people don't even know what a sommelier is. If I'm even saying sommelier right, I don't know. But can you dig into what is a sommelier? What is the court of master sommeliers that you've kind of advanced the ranks up to the very elite? And just give us kind of an overview of an industry some people don't even know exists out there. Uh, absolutely, Brad. Uh, I guess first and foremost, what is a sommelier? Look, when it comes to pronunciations, the English would say every single syllable sommelier. The French just kind of lazily, lackadaisically say sommelier. And, uh, and, and in the U.S., you know, we are a very young country when it comes to food and wine. So we say sommelier, sommelier, and we, it's just a lot of words that kind of come out on the American side. But uh, pronunciations, if you say sommelier or sommelier, or as we've kind of colloquialized it over the last, you know, almost 10 years, we just say som. A som uh, doesn't have to be a wine expert, but what a som is, what a sommelier is, is a a wine steward. Look, at the end of the day, every single sommelier, no matter what your capacity is in the business you chose in the field of hospitality, look, we're all servers at the end of the day. When you think of what a steward is, a steward is a, a server. A steward is an individual who looks after things and or people, looks after provisions, looks after, you know, back in the day, a sum before, uh, in Latin terms, a psalm, before it became the word sommelier, uh, was, was, was in charge of looking after, after the provisions for uh, higher, higher individuals in the royal court, whether it was a king or whether it was someone of high status. A psalm would look after that individual by tasting the fermented goods, tasting the distilled goods, tasting the breads, uh, tasting the food provisions. Uh, this way, uh, the higher official in court or the king would know whether or not someone lower than him or someone in the in the territory or the kingdom that that king uh, reigned over, uh, whether him or her were trying to poison him. So when you think about the job of a psalm, a steward, the steward's job was to taste any of the provisions first to make sure the king or the high noble official didn't get poisoned, didn't die. So uh, when you think about Psalms, we were kind of the guinea pigs for uh, death, if that makes sense. So that's really, that's really, uh, it's really cool when you see the old school Psalms and restaurants go through this beautiful presentation on a Gary Don with the wine. And they always pour themselves, not this much, 
but about uh, four to seven milliliters or about an ounce of wine just to smell it, just to taste it, just to nose it and make sure the wine is sound before it goes to the guest at the table, whether male or female, whether him or her. It's always uh, the individual at the table that we always like to uh, taste first after we nose this glass would be uh, the host or hostess. Of course, the individual who ordered the bottle of wine, we repeat that order back to them. Uh, We pour a taste for them after we taste it to make sure it's sound. And of course, whomever the guest of honor may be, male or female at the table, gets the next pour. But uh, that's what a server is. That's what a psalm is. We're stewards. We're wine servers in restaurants. Now, look, we have many, many, many different capacities. Uh, We'd be here another three hours talking about all of the uh, of the avenues that a wine steward can go down in the professional world of hospitality and business. But when you traditionally uh, think of what a sommelier is or sommelier is, it is a uh, lady or a gentleman who is on the floor. That's kind of our colloquial term on the floor, on the floor in a restaurant, uh, lunch in, dinner out, and, and making sure that each and every guest, whether it be in the bar, in the dining room, in the PDR for slang, private dining room, uh, is looked after. Make, making sure the guests have wine in their glass, making sure bottles are decanted if need be, bottles are cold and ready to go, champagne, white wine for the guests at the table. So, so that's so what a psalm is, my friend. You know what you're talking about. Here's my mispronunciation count. I'm at one already, and we're about five minutes into the conversation. So <laughs> see how many I can rack up. So based on that background, is that the little medallion I've seen some Psalms wear in some higher-end restaurants? Is that part of the history? Because that would have been sampling before the guests sampled. That is part of the history, uh, depending on what old-school French uh, kind of slang you speak. Uh, it's, it's always been called a top vent. But we kind of hear the more uh, more today, more the up to date word called tastevan, and uh, yes, that those were those were used as early as a thousand years ago in 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 France, all throughout France, because remember there was no electricity. All there were were candles to light their way through the cellars and uh, taste through the barrels and taste through the vats of what was being fermented or what was aging had already been fermented, but what was aging being ready to bottled and even bottles that have been lying on their side. We use this terminology called surlot lying on their side that was ready for the vintner or the owner or the proprietor or the winemaker to sample. So basically you'd hold a top Vaughn in, in your hand. I wish you would have told me I, I, I'd grab mine. It might take five or 10 minutes to find, but I actually do have one that was given to me by a, a very, uh, he's since passed away about 15 years ago, but a very esteemed, uh, a uh, gentleman by the name of Lee Grayley James, but uh, that's another story. But uh, it was really used to look at the clarity of the wine, mostly Burgundy, but used all throughout France and, of course, all throughout Europe, Austria, Germany, Italy, absolutely. Uh, but it was actually the first tasting vessel that was you could use to the clear, look at the clarity of the wine, kind of buyer, seller, look at all the sides and the angles and, and the wine, and you have a sip and you hand it to... Uh, the proprietor, the negotiant, or the consumer, and have them sip as well. So Tostavans are really cool. I've still got a good friend by the name of Aldo Som who uh, runs his own restaurant, uh, of course, the eponymous place uh, called uh, the Som Wine Bar that's literally 15 feet away from Le Bernardin, where he is still the wine director under Eric Repair. He still wears his daily, and I think it's pretty that's cool. That's 
That's interesting. That's actually where I saw it the first time. My wife and I went to New York. And yeah, interesting. Okay, so this is the longest I've ever had not only one glass, but two glasses of wine sitting beside me and not sampled one. So, <laughs> so here's what I'd like to do. I'm the king of this. I love wine. I've collected wine for probably the last four or five years. My wife and I love it, primarily Cabernet. But what you find is the more you learn about wine, the more you learn, you absolutely have no clue about the world of wine. So what I would like... Please don't ask me any questions about Romania right now. I'm rusty. Yeah, you haven't studied the note cards lately? (laughs) Um, Here's what I would like to do. So my goal is here, how can we bring as much value to a bunch of independent financial advisors out there? And a lot of them have high net worth clients that enjoy wine. They host nice parties. And wine is very... It can be intimidating. You look at these wine lists at these nice restaurants, it's like, man, I'm scared to say half of them because I'm going to mispronounce them in front of my clients. So yeah. where I would like to start is just since we have two great Penfolds, we're going to give a shout out to your crew at Penfold. So you selected these. I'll let you tell everybody what they are. I'll hold them up for the camera so everybody can see. But we've got two bottles here, the Ben 28, Ben 407. That's it. And I'd like you to just walk through Wine Tasting 101 why do you even start with swirling the glass at the restaurant? Everybody sees it. Half the people don't even know why you do it. Yeah. So I'll let you take over from here. So if I'm a financial advisor, how do I taste a glass of wine and look educated about it? You got it, Brett. Well, look, the first thing about tasting wine is uh, it's, it's, the wine is what it is, and we make it a lot more things than it uh, should be, could be, or we don't give it enough to in a lot of instances. Once you put the wine in the glass, the, gla- the wine is now in, a, in an area where it starts to deteriorate. Now, that doesn't mean that chapter one won't uh, develop chapter two, three, four, five, six. The wine is going to open up. But once you remove the cork, notice I did not remove the cork. I use this wonderful device here uh, called the Coravan. But once you remove the cork from the bottle, the wine then starts to die. Now, you're probably saying, well, that doesn't make sense. You remove the cork because you want to get that wine decanted and open, and you actually want to uh, uh, awaken that wine and get all those phenols and those esters and all these beautiful things uh, about the wine kind of reacting with all the molecules in the air and kind of opening up. Yes, all those things are absolutely true. Wine will develop once air hits it. But think about what I just said. The wine will develop. That wine is starting to die. We just experienced these wonderful chapters in the death of the wine because oxygen has come in contact with this wonderful juice. So the first thing you need to do is you need to get this wine into the glass. Uh, uh, Whether you're opening uh, the wine for one of your clients or opening wine for uh, for yourself as you're doing now, pouring this wine. Which one are you pouring? The Ben 28 or Ben 407? 28. Ben 28. There we are. Kalimna Shiraz. The first thing I always do is I always look at the clarity of the wine. I hold this wine over a white background uh, because, of course, white background works best when you're uh, looking at the clarity of the wine. And you just really want to look at the wine and make sure uh, the wine is not too cloudy. Look, if if you're pouring a wine like we are from the 2014 vintage, uh, the wine should look young and vibrant and clear. And it should have a wonderful almost... uh, electric or or fuchsia kind of pink rim around the edge because it's a young wine that's just been opened and it's ready to drink. 
Now, look, older wines, uh, you know, from the late 80s, the late 70s, obviously post-war, late 40s, uh, 50s and 60s, those wines are going to be a bit more dull, a bit more murky. They're going to have a, a cloudy consistency because the color is falling out of the wine and falling to the bottom of said bottle. This is a young wine not happening here. So you're just kind of looking at the clarity of the wine when you do that. Uh, the second thing you want to do is, you, you, you know, you see people do this often. They hold the glass up and they say, wow, this wine has beautiful legs. But what, what does that even mean? And, and unfortunately, uh, in the modicum of, uh, of the United States and our young, our very young uh, kind of novice way and style of drinking wine, we think if the wine has legs, it's a good wine. That's just kind of the, the, the thought around. But all wine has legs and all wine is good to those who produced it, but not all wine is as incredible as others, of course. Uh, so what you're actually looking at uh, when you look at the legs of the wine is you're looking at, at glycerin, the amount of alcohol and or sugar. Now, look, there's sugar in all wine, even though wines can be fermented bone dry. Now, just write a little note, Brad, and allow me to come back to that later. Uh, all Our wines are bone dry, but the wines still have legs. So what does that mean? Well, legs just tell you roughly, if you will, how much alcohol the wine may or may not contain and if there is any residual sugar. Now, because I did give you a hint, there actually is no residual sugar in any of our wines, our dry red wines, of course, or dry white wines. We do make fortified wines where uh, some of them happen to have residual sugar, but that's another story. Uh, but the beauty about this is the slower these wonderful legs, I'm not sure if the screen captures this beauty, uh, but the slower these legs uh, tend to fall would kind of let you know a couple of things. Now, you have to be very, very versed in this, but often, you know, we get it wrong as well. The slower the legs tend to fall down the glass, you tend to perceive, well, this grape variety, this wine, either came from a warmer climate, more than likely may have a thicker skin, and more than likely may contain residual sugar. But this is just the first four or five points that we're identifying on the wine. We've got another at least 30, and, and you can go all the way up to 55 points you can actually use to identify what's in the glass. We haven't even nosed or tasted the wine yet. So once we make a generalization about whether or not this could be a thicker, thin-skinned grape, whether or not it could have come from a warm climate, whether or not the alcohol could be elevated or it could be residual sugar, then you get a wonderful nose of the wine. Are you getting red fruits, blue fruits, black fruits? Uh, are the fruits underripe? Are they just ripe? Are they ripe? Are they overripe? Or are they dried? Almost like uh, stewed or dried fruits. Now, what you're doing is you're just going deeper down the rabbit hole. You've got a long way to go, but you're just making yourself go deeper down the rabbit hole, trying to figure out all these characteristics of the wine that hopefully may lead you to a place, a region, or a style, or a country, of course. Uh, once we smell fruit and determine the type of fruit it may or may not be, 
We uh, look for non-fruit characteristics like flowers and different types of spices and herbaceous notes. How much earth is in the wine? How much organic activity is taking place or inorganic activity? Now, Brad, are you familiar with organic versus inorganic? You better enlighten me. That's what I plan to do. So anything that is organic, what does organic mean to you? Organic means this thing or this organism or this this whatever we're talking about is living. Mm -hmm. It is a living thing. So I'm not sure what your garden looks like at your home, but everything outside your house to the front, to the back, to the side in your backyard, that's organic. Whether you've got flowers, if you've got basil planted or thyme or bay leaf or rosemary or cabbage or squash, that's all organic. The dirt, the potting soil, the earth, the mushrooms, the, that's, it's, it's living matter. So that's organic. And yes, believe it or not, you do find that in wine. Now, everything that is inorganic is what? Rocks. Yeah. yeah. Limestone, slate, chalk. That is inorganic matter, inorganic material, meaning it has never lived. It's inorganic. It, it has no life being in it. Now, mostly the inorganic stuff, it's what's been here 350, 400, 600, you know, 100 million years. It's, it's, it's uh, been here a long time, you know, depending on how old the earth is. That's not my field, billion years old plus. I'm not sure. But uh, these inorganic things, what we talk about in wine, are things like, you know, gravel that you find in Bordeaux and a lot of places around the world or limestone and chalk that you find in Champagne and Chablis and, and places in Burgundy and uh, igneous rock and volcanic soil that you find in the beautiful Napa Valley or Terra Rosa that you find in Australia. So I want to throw this out there because I'll just be the idiot on this podcast and then everybody can learn from my mistakes. But I remember very early on, I think it was my first trip to Napa, Sarah and I went out and I made the mistake of asking, you know, cause you smell and you can smell fruit. I remember smelling like a cherry nose on the wine we were tasting. And I made the mistake of asking, you know, are there cherries in this? Right. Like, <laughs> like rookie 101 wine taster. And so let's just go into, okay. So I'm, I don't want to be a fool in front of my clients. I think that's where a lot of financial advisors live. They enjoy wine. They love it. But like you said, going down the rabbit hole, the further you go down, the more you're like, I have no clue about the depths of this rabbit hole I'm going down. So if we were going to, here's what most of our clients would do. They'd pour a nice wine, hopefully that they selected off a list and they'd smell it and taste it. And how do you do that in front of clients in a nice, sophisticated way that I don't want to be disingenuous. I don't want to say you fake like you know it, but just how do I taste wine when I don't really know how to taste wine in front of clients and not make a fool of myself? That's probably the best way to say it. Well, you just kind of need to learn the basics and just jot down notes before you go into whatever setting you may or may not be going into. Uh, The beauty about it is if you're tasting a red wine, more than likely, you're going to get some sort of red fruit, some sort of blue fruit, and or some sort of black fruit. If you are tasting white wine, well, think about, and I am generalizing here, just kind of top lining. If you're tasting white wine, well, more than likely, you may get some type of lemon lime. And think about stone fruit, pomacy fruit, or pomaceous fruit. You know, with pomace, anything with a pomace has a seed. Mm -hmm. So apples, pears, and and, and a seeded fruit, a pomacy fruit, uh, stone fruit. Think about apricots and peaches. 
are citric fruit. Think about lemon, lime, think about orange. Those are your citric fruits. Think about tropical fruits and tree fruits, whether pineapple or banana, etc. So white wine has its categories. Red wine has its categories. And look, if you're a novice and you're going in, you know, you're at a tasting room or you're at a cool little wine bar with five of your top clients and all have high net worth and you want to go in and just just do a little, hey, hey, guys, let's go do a little tasting the day after we leave the office and we had a long day of meetings and, you know, go to the tasting room, pour yourself a little uh, taste. And primarily, I'm top lining, if you have a thicker skin grape variety like Shiraz Syrah that we have in our glass now, more than likely, you're going to get some red fruits and some black fruits and just kind of, you know, look, I get some, I get some ripe raspberry, I get some ripe black cherry, some ripe blackberry, uh, wonderful notes of like mocha and, and, and toasted oak. And look, you sound like you know what you're talking about. It's the delivery. It's the confidence. If you're drinking a white wine, let's just pick on the most popular white grape variety in the world, Chardonnay. Uh, look, I get some lemon, some lime, a little bit of that stone fruit, like just ripe apricot, uh, a beautiful creamy note. Guess what? You sound like a pro. Now, if you have a white, if you have a white wine and you're saying, you know, I get black, black cherry, well, uh, maybe a bit off base. Or if you say you get lime on this, uh, maybe a bit off base, but it's about knowing your, the color of wine you have. If it's a red wine, it's usually going to be in three or four different shades. I mean, would you ever guess that this is Pinot Noir just looking at the glass? No. No. Looking at the glass, you could guess a million things, but you would never say Pinot. You would say, oh, it could be Cabernet, could be Zinfandel, could be Syrah, could be Merlot, could be Malbec. But at least we know the commonality of those grape varieties I just named. They've got some type of vein of black fruit in them. Black cherry. And for those Black that beer. haven't had Pinot before, just because it's such a lighter skinned grape, it's very transparent when you look at it through the glass, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And you can say notes of like pomegranate, strawberry, you know, just ripe cherry, maybe some cola influence, depending on the wine, where the wine has come from. But these are all the things that uh, it does take time to learn, even for the novice. Uh, the novice just needs to jot down some notes, a few different grape varieties, and just kind of just kind of taste these wines. Go out and buy these wines to yourself, and they don't need to be expensive at all. But spend ten dollars, uh, spend fifteen dollars on a wonderful uh, Beaujolais, or thirty dollars on a wonderful Beaujolais crew, uh, which has a an appellation attached to it, a specific village in Beaujolais, uh, and, and spend twenty five bucks on a great kind of Burgonia, just village level Burgonia from Burgundy. Uh, spend. 15 bucks on a great Zinfandel from California, spend 30 bucks on a great Shiraz from Australia and just taste these wines to yourself and kind of take notes and uh, kind of to yourself form a lexicon uh, uh, in your brain of what these wines taste like so that when you go out and you're with clients, you can say, hey, I've got a beautiful Pinot Noir that I like you guys to taste. It's got notes of cherry and underripe pomegranate and it's got a long finish and you sound like you've been doing this for years. But, but the novices also have to do the work. Yeah. Or just take the easy path and fly you in for a private wine tasting for clients, right? Just buy enough, buy enough pinfolds where it makes sense and done deal. Absolutely. So I won't forgive myself if we do this. So for those out there that have not seen the movie Psalm or Psalm Into the Bottle, or there's an upcoming Psalm 3 that we might get some hints on here in a little bit if we get enough wine in you, right? But one of the things that I fell in love with the very first Psalm movie 
was, and I'm going to butcher this. Is it the profile? There's like six things or something that you tick off when you're tasting a wine to identify what it is. What is that called? I'm sure I'm like six different categories, but uh, there are many, there are many, many subcategories within each of those. So we just, what we call it is the grid. We grid a wine. Thank you. Tasting grid. Yeah. Okay. So I have loved wine for a long time, but I stumble across this movie, Psalm on Netflix. One of my buddies watched it and he's like, you've got to check this out. And when I realized the level of wine experts there on the world where the first time I saw the clip, I think it was you, Brian, Ian, some of the guys from the movie, basically, yeah, yeah, Dustin, basically getting the nose and a little sip and then going down this grid and just straight nailing the wine. So if you don't mind, just because for those that haven't seen Psalm, we're going to put it in the show notes. All of you should go out and see it if you enjoy wine. Would you mind gridding one of these and just so they can see kind of how that flows and you're just almost poetic with how you do it. So I hope I'm not putting you on the spot, but <laughs> well, I appreciate it, Brad. But let me say this first. Look, it, it, it seems like, I don't know, witchcraft or some type of wizardry or, or whatever it is when, you know, look, it's, it's muscle memory for us. We've done it so much. We've uh, built a lexicon in our brain it, we've, we've done it so much that it is kind of second nature to us. I mean, look, you were an athlete, man. When you think about, folks to play baseball or whatever it is, you learn to keep your elbow lined up with your ear and your eye. You learn your stance and you do it so much. You're looking at pitches, whether it's a batting cage or uh, pitchers throwing different variants, uh, uh, variances of speeds. It's muscle memory. It's hand-eye. It's muscle memory, muscle memory, muscle memory. It's the same muscle memory for us. There's a lot of glasses that we can actually pick up and say, uh, that's more than likely Syrah or Shiraz. Uh, nine times out of 10, just based on the color and what I'm getting on the nose, it's probably Australia. Look, and people are like, wow, how did you just do that? Well, it's muscle memory. I've got to be honest with you. It really is muscle memory. Uh, but gritting a wine. Yeah. That's a fun thing to do. I'll absolutely do it. Now this is a bit unfair because I actually know what the wine is, but, uh, I'll do a, a very truncated version probably a minute and a half just to give all the viewers and the guests a feel of, uh, of what it is. Yeah, so here we are. Uh, as you can see in the screen here, I've got a beautiful red wine that is uh, star bright with a fluorescent hot pink red edge uh, flowing to a deep ruby core. No gas, no sediment. This is a young wine, so no sediment. Uh, medium plus viscosity. Light, and actually medium standing in the tears. On the nose, wine is clean and clear. No obvious flaws, ripe, powerful, raspberry, cherry, blackberry, cola, mocha, baker's chocolate, toast, a little bit of turned soil, red and purple flowers, lavender, anise, violets, some sage and eucalyptus. I'm getting baking spices and savory spices. My savory spices are more like thyme and bay leaf because it's got some of that kind of subwar earthy characteristic, but it's really more about the baking spices like fresh vanilla and again, some eucalyptus and mint. Uh, I am getting the evidence of oak on this wine. It's got a wonderful kind of clove and uh, kind of a toasted vanilla characteristic. Uh, not much in organic activity. It might be some wet rocks, but it's really more about this kind of organic living uh, ripe fruit attack oaky characteristic. Let's go ahead and get to the palate. 
dry wine, full bodied. I want to confirm my red fruits. They are, they smelled ripe on the nose, but actually on the palate, they're slightly underripe to just ripe. So raspberry, dark cherry, blackberry. I want to confirm my violets, my anise, my lavender. I want to confirm this beautiful kind of French kind of bake, uh, baker's chocolate aroma that I get on the palate that's kind of going through my olfactory system and back down. It's, it's wonderful how that olfactory, when you swallow and you kind of exhale and it comes back, it's a, a beautiful, a beautiful note. Confirm this wonderful characteristic of oak. I'm getting toast. I'm getting leather. I'm getting mocha. I'm getting this wonderful, uh, wonderful vanilla characteristic on the palate that I want to confirm. Uh, eucalyptus, thyme, bay leaf, uh, sage. Uh, wow, mint. Beautiful finish. No new oak on this wine, but this wine has seen oak aging. Uh, more than likely American oak. That is the answer because of this wonderful eucalyptus, coconut, sawdust characteristic. Long finish. The wine is balanced. Uh, niche conclusions from this wine. I have to put this wine in the new world and not the old world because it's more about the fruit and less about the kind of earth and the acidic structure of the wine. The wine has beautiful acid, but it's fruit, 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 as opposed to earth, 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 acid, acid, then fruit. Usually what you get in the old world. Uh, young wine, three to five years old. Uh, from a warm climate, because of the legs, because of the ripeness of fruit, the legs are falling very slow. It's got a powerful kind of viscosity and weight to the wine. So, New World wine, warm climate. Uh, I'm going to put this one in Australia, South Australia, Barossa Valley. Possible grape varieties could be Cabernet, uh, could be Shiraz, uh, could be a wonderful blend uh, uh, herein. But uh, this is a 100% Syrah, Shiraz-based wine. From the uh, from the from the New World, which I'm very confused because when you think about Australia, Australia is 450 million, 50 million years older than Europe. Europe was still underwater, so I don't know why we're in the New World, but we'll go with that. Uh, beautiful uh, New World wine from South Australia, Barossa Valley, 2014 vintage. That's it. I'm just going to start when I open a new bottle of wine. I'm just going to text you. Let's go ahead and FaceTime, and I'm just going to need you to do that on demand whenever I open a new bottle. Is that cool? Done. Done. <laughs> uh, dude, that stuff never gets old. So that truly is muscle memory, but it's also, I remember early days, Gary Vaynerchuk, you know, pioneer in basically tasting wine on the internet. And he would just, same thing that you just did. You just nailed like 25 different smells, tastes, just all of these different senses. I mean, you're a Texas kid. I'm a Kansas kid growing up. Where did that come from? How did you develop the wine vocabulary to pull from? Listening to greats that came before me, you know, look, when I was uh, a young sommelier in, in, in Europe, when I was a young sommelier in Texas, a young sommelier in California, uh, flying around and learning and what we, uh, we use a terminology called staging, a uh, stagier. Uh, we use a terminology called staging where we work in restaurants and different hotels and we do mock services and things. You're listening to the people that came before you. You're listening to how winemakers and vintners and analogists and other sommeliers have described wine over, over centuries. I mean, for the most part, the verbiage for Cabernet has been the same for about five, 600 years. For the most, most part, the same is going for Syrah, Shiraz, Zinfandel, uh, Chardonnay, whether it's from Chablis or... Pugini or Chasson or Montrachet itself or all these other places, the, the terminology has mostly been the same. Now, we've gotten more accurate 
over the course of years and of course modernity. But uh, again, it kind of goes to the point that I talked about earlier. You shouldn't hold up this glass and say lemon and lime. Uh, it's Shiraz. You more than likely shouldn't hold this glass up and say pomegranate either. What you should say is deep, ripe, complex blackberry. Deep, ripe, complex Asian plum, especially with Aussie Shiraz. Not so much with Northern Rhone Syrah, which you use the terminology uh, 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 Asian plum or, or kind of soy, but these are terminologies that we use when it comes to Australian wine. And it's just really kind of what you assimilate, what your brain has worked with for for over evolution, hundreds and thousands of years or whatever, but uh, what those who came before you in the field have kind of have kind of taught you. Mm-hmm. So once you build your lexicon, you want to get these things accurate. It only comes from, it, it comes from a lot of study. It comes from a lot of... Uh, benchmarking and market research and vintage research and producer research and more importantly uh village and appellation and country research so yeah you build that up over the course of time and look i don't believe in the whole ten thousand hours thing look i I probably completed ten thousand hours by the age of 23 in said field uh and there may be some other uh notable people, highly venerated people that also don't believe in the 10,000 hour rule. I'm sure you could probably dive into that, Brad, Mm -hmm. but uh, it does take a long time to kind of build your lexicon and build uh, your base for what these different grape varieties contain when it comes to fruit profiles across the board. It's interesting because I knew there were wine experts, but before, and I'm going to name drop some about 15 times probably because that was an eye opener for me. How many total master? There's like 250, the highest level master psalms in the world. What's the number? Two, 237, or I might be off a couple, but a few good friends of mine just passed in London a couple of weeks ago. So big yeah. shout out to Mr. Piotr. Yeah. Hey, feel free to, this will go out to the world. So if you want to give them congratulations, throw it out there. So the study that you guys did, I mean, it's not just, hey, let's sample some good wines. It's note cards of wine regions, grape varieties everything all across the board. And so I really do respect when you watch that video, you truly did put in the work to master your craft. And I want to change gears a little bit because you've hosted a lot of really fun wine parties over the years. And I mean, it's basically your job, right? Thousands. Part of it. Part of my job. (laughs) It's got to be the fun part, at least. Um, Absolutely. So in financial services, a lot of our clients... It's all about, you know, how do you market your business? And one of the best ways to market your business is how do you clone your top clients? And most people, you know, it's going to be a higher net worth client. Money isn't everything, but obviously more dollars per client is a good thing in business. And a lot of high net worth individuals, as you know, enjoy good wine. So what are some ideas you could throw out? Everything's on the table here. I'll just lay out what a typical wine event would look like in financial services. And then you maybe put your twist on it and share some cool ideas. So a lot of our clients have hosted maybe a monthly or bi-monthly wine event where they'll invite their top clients. They'll say, hey, this is a social event. That means it's not just for our clients. Bring your friends that enjoy wine as well. So it's an easy way for them to meet basically people just like their top clients. And they might lay out a calendar of events for the year, say one, one month. Napa cabs, one month, I don't know, Washington Pinots, just all across the board. And they'll just kind of go through that. Maybe they do some blind tastings, things like that. But what would be some cool ways 
to host really fun wine events that people want to go to or like dying to attend and still create that social environment where it's a chance for people to connect with people that are great potential clients. I love that, Brad. Uh, I think the first thing you should do is you should know your audience. You should definitely know your demographic. And once you know your demographic, whether you're talking to, you know, uh, chief level executives or senior VP level, or whether you're talking to senior director levels throughout, throughout the ranks, uh, kind of gauge that demographic so you can know what average bottle price point you may uh, want to pull from. And uh, after that, pick a theme. Uh, is it the, I hate to be cheesy and cachet, but is it the Tour de France? Uh, is your theme Italy? Is your theme Europe in general? Uh, is your theme the Southern Hemisphere? We call it Sohim uh, for short. Is your theme California? Is it your th- is your theme the, the United States or is your theme Napa Valley cult wine? So you could have many many things. So pick your themes, and more than likely the Napa Valley cult wine theme is probably going to be a tasting event, uh, a happy hour, a mixer that you do for more than likely chief level uh, chief level of course uh, executives. But uh, once you know your demographic and once you pick your theme then look, it's time, to, it's time to buy wines. And the best thing to do, I think the best thing to do, especially for a, bina- a financial advisor like yourself and a lot of your great peers and colleagues and friends to do is go to a retail store or your local wine bar that has brick and mortar and actually speak to someone on site. This is a very, it's a very personal thing that we do here. So look, a lot of us buy wine online because look, we know what we're looking for and I want that, I want that. Ship it to me, ship it to me. I don't feel like dealing with anybody. I'm very busy. I get that. We are, we're all there. But when you're dealing with something like this, go to an actual brick and mortar and speak with someone. Give them your ideas. Give them your price point. Let them know uh, the demographic that you're pointing for. Look, I need Napa cold wines or I need the most expensive wines in the world, the, the top five, two bottles each, whatever the case may be. Wines like Pinfold's Grange would be in that uh, conversation. Wines like Lafitte and Mouton, Unico from Vegas, Sicilia, and, and, and. And uh, talk to the wine expert, him or her, and uh, just kind of really get some good notes on these wines and make the purchase. And off you go. You go home, you open these wines, you double decant these wines by pouring these wines into a decanter and then simply pouring from the decanter back into the bottle because you always want to present to the client from the bottle so that they can see the label. But what you've done uh, at the same time is you've given the wine double aeration. You've exposed it to air to kind of open these wines up. And once you've done all those things, look, you're ready to go. Make sure you have uh, uh, beautiful pins for them to write with, uh, uh, spit buckets because some folks are uh, maybe driving. They may or may not have uh, a car arranged for them to get there or not. So something that they can expect to rate in, a spit cup, a spit bucket, something like that. And make sure they've got a be- beautiful tasting mat where they can take all these great notes as you or I or whomever it may be, lead your wonderful clients and colleagues, peers and friends through this wonderful tasting. And, and you can do that at any price point. The average price point could be 500 a bottle, 250 a bottle. It could be $75 a bottle, or it could be a wonderful, this tasting is geared for all wines, 50 and under, some 15, some 39.99, some 44.99. So this tasting can happen across any spectrum that you choose. 
but just make sure that, you know, you've got a wonderful setting for them to walk into and feel like even though they may be in an office, they may be in a retail store, they may be in a, a venue that you've rented out, make them feel like they're maybe in Europe if it's a Tour de France or maybe in Napa with some barrels around and some things to kind of put them in that sense of place. So I think that's the best way to host uh, tasting events. And uh, of course, you can always dial a friend and that friend would be me. <laughs> I will dial you. We're going to find a way to get you to Kansas and uh, do a tasting. So it'll happen. Oh, I think it'll happen very, very soon. I think uh, once I get out of the busyness of September and October, uh, I might have to sneak into a cold November uh, day into Kansas or maybe December. So don't worry. I have a lot of friends that enjoy wine. So you'll be well received. Uh, so let's go back to the wine events. So part of obviously hosting a fun client event is that it's fun. Now, wine yeah. by itself and just doing a lot of what you just talked about is amazing. Are there any, call them wine tasting games? I've done some before where maybe you do a, a $20 bottle, a $40 bottle, a $100 bottle, you brown bag all three. You do a blind tasting and see who can call the, you know, which bottles which. Have you done any other cool type of things like that that would be fun to share for wine tasting events? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a funny thing. I actually started an event. Oh, heck, I don't know. It might have been 2007, 2008 that I used to do a lot. Uh, I used to do it a lot with uh, a very high net worth clients in uh, Dallas, Texas. I'm sure you can imagine there are uh, more than a few big names there that I used to deal with and still do deal with on a regular basis. But I hosted an event, uh, a series of events called You Show Me Yours and I'll Show You Mine. Uh, only capped at 12 people. Uh, of course, I was always the host. I always brought a bottle myself. But uh, each of the other 11 individuals would uh, bring a bottle to my venue two or three days before. Because when you think about you show me yours, I'll show you mine. It's, it's, it's to, to be colloquial, it's kind of a measuring contest. So people are bringing wines of great value. Now, all these wines were blind. So the, co the collector who brought his or her bottle obviously knew what they brought, but they had no idea what, what, what I or any of the other uh, individuals themselves brought. I'd brown bag all the wines, of course. I'd double decant, make sure the aeration on the wines was there, make sure the wines were solid because older wines can be oxidized or matterized or may have TCA that can affect younger wines also. Uh, but I double decant the wines, pour the wines back into bottle, and then put them in a brown bag with a rubber band, a tie, black piece of electrical tape around the top so the bag wouldn't fall and you can't see the label. And I would have a wonderful tasting note, numbered 1 through 12 with a few spaces, and uh, you usually get about five to six minutes per wine. And each, each collector, each individual would taste the wines and write down, hopefully, they would get their wine correct. And they would write down what they thought the other wines are. I think it's so fun because sometimes it's, it could be a 1982 Lafitte, you know, that's worth more than a few grand a bottle. Or it could be, I don't know, it could be 76 Grange, more than worth a few grand a bottle. Or it could be a wine like Opus One, still very expensive, but it's, you know, 350 a bottle from a younger vintage. So the beauty about this is everyone blind tasting and, taking their notes on the wine and trying to put them in the right numbers, uh, one through 12 and guess what they think they are. Sometimes collectors are very close. Sometimes they are way off. Oh, Napa Cabernet, but no, it's actually Bordeaux or Napa Cabernet or it's actually Burgundy from Domaine de la Romani Conti. So 
it's a it's a real fun thing. But the event was called You Show Me Yours, I'll Show You Mine. Blind wines, 12 wines, 12 people cap. You know, so everybody can get a two-ounce pour of each. Yeah. And you always bring them back up in case the wine is corked or oxidized or matterized. So, that's look, that's one of the really, really fun events uh, that I've done over the years. Uh, you've got other events like, uh, you know, kind of bring that bottle. These bring the bottle nights have gone on for, I don't know, probably 50, 60 years. You know, the old school generation post-war kind of started these events throughout uh, France and the UK and the US where everybody would bring their most treasured bottle. It didn't have to be the most expensive, but you would bring your most treasured bottle from your cellar and you tell a story about it. Everybody got four, five, six minutes to stand up and tell their story. And the next thing you know, all the collector, all the guys are going around and pouring wine for everybody else at the table. So those are just a couple of the things you can do. But look, there's a there's an endless amount of wine games and wine tasting games that you can do at parties to make them very fun and, and very interactive. Those are just the two that I've always found that really make you engage, you know? Yeah. It is funny because my wife and I love Napa. I mean, that's someday where hopefully we'll retire. Just buy a little house that will cost way more than, than what <laughs> we should yes. pay for it. But anyway, so I'm not retiring anytime soon. But the beauty of when you go to wine country, there's no other spirit in the world. Maybe whiskey's trying right now, but just the story behind every bottle, like here's, it just, that's what you remember. And that's at least a lot of my love of wine is there's always a story with every bottle. And so that, that second event, I could see that being an amazing client event for people that enjoy wine, obviously. Yeah. Collect it. All right. So I want to go back to the first one. What was the percentage of people that got their own bottle wrong? Oh, oh the, the percentage that got them wrong, heck, 75. 75% got their own bottle wrong. Their own bottle incorrect. Absolutely. Because look, when you have 11 other incredible wines, mm-hmm. and let's say you brought, uh, I don't know, 82 Pichon Lalonde, right? Let's say you brought 18, 1982 Pichon Lalonde and... What you think you have before you is a 1982 Margot. You're like, is this my Margot? Is this Margot from Margot or is this Bordeaux? Is this my Pichon from Poyac? Oh, I don't know what I mean. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's a tough game. It really is. And what gets me is, you know, I've, I've, I've heard a lot of uh, comments from consumers and people who've seen both Psalm films and people who will see the third and have watched TV shows uh, like Uncorked you know, uh, following sommeliers and you hear a lot of people say, how could you dare get Chardonnay wrong? Ah, Chardonnay is Chardonnay. How would you ever call that something else? And it's like, guys, you have no idea when you're under the gun and you've got six wines before you and your life doesn't depend on it, but your life depends on getting these wines, right? Your paycheck does. Yeah. Yeah. Your paycheck depends on getting these wines, right? Uh, it's, 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 it's easy to mess up. It really is. So uh, it doesn't matter how many years in the game you have, how talented you are. It's tough. Yeah. Let's go into the movies. So let's start with this because the first Psalm movie came out in 2013. And it's still crazy to me how many people haven't seen the first Psalm, but everybody that watches it, they immediately fall in love with it. So last plug to watch Psalm, go watch it if you haven't. We'll put it in the show notes. Absolutely. Um, so 2013, this is going down. Obviously, you guys are filming before that. So was it, how long was the filming? A year or two before? Yeah, no, we actually started filming the first Psalm film at the end of 2009. Oh, wow. 
Absolutely. Look, look, there's 900 hours. I might be being a bit facetious there, but there's 900 hours that you haven't even seen. So we, Jason, when you listen to this, we need a Psalm 1 director's cut, extended version. (laughs) There is one. It needs to be the extended, extended, extended version. There we go. So, all right. So let's talk to one thing I see in financial services. In any business, it's about marketing. And one of the things that is just obvious, it's how America works, right or wrong, is media creates influence. And so a lot of our top clients, they have their own radio shows. A lot of them have been on TV. Haven't had any that I know of in movies yet, but who knows? So let's speak about your life before Psalm and after Psalm. What did it do? Uh, My life before Psalm was... Look, I, I was very fortunate to have some type of, I don't know, dare I say, global presence, if that's even a thing, because I was very fortunate to have been... Uh, featured in magazines, whether uh, whether articles like the Huffington Post or whether Wine Spectator, Wine and Spirits Magazine, Wine Enthusiast, Decanter Magazine out in the UK. Uh, I don't know, publications like Every Day with Rachel Ray, Rachel Ray's Magazine. Uh, I was fortunate to have a, a little bit of a bandwidth, if that makes sense, as, mm-hmm. a, as a sommelier and wine director. And But the beauty about the Psalm film is that of course, when you have something that's on TV and that is uh, uh, accessible on Netflix and on iTunes for people in mainland China, people in Southeast Asia, people in Mexico, people in, in Australia, before I even worked for the beautiful country uh, that it is. I mean, that that definitely did do something for myself and for the other guys uh, and the gals that were in the movie. That, of course, we had no idea imaginable uh, could and would happen. But thankfully, I had a little bit of a bandwidth uh, working for great corporate chefs like Wolfgang Puck and and various events I did working with great chefs like Michael Mina and Thomas Keller and Danielle Boulud and, of course, Eric Repair and and all the other great chefs around the U.S., uh, Dane Faring in Dallas, my guy John Tezar in Dallas, who was actually Jim, Jimmy Sears and Bourdain's Kit, uh, Kitchen Confidential, uh, great folks like Stephen Piles, all these great chefs. Uh, I had a little bit of bandwidth, but the Psalm film just took you from where you may have been in your career, and it put you on a whole nother stratosphere, mm-hmm. and eyes were on you. So uh, that's the beautiful thing about what Jason Wise created with Psalm and Psalm Into the Bottle. And of course, Psalm 3, untitled. So <laughs> that's the so beautiful what, thing about right, it. So, so it's, it's you, done a lot for us. What hints do you have about Psalm 3? Can you throw one or two things out that won't get you in trouble with Jason? Uh, yes. So Psalm 3 is about legends. Legends in the business. Legends in the industry. Some of the most venerated people uh, in the wine profession, whether... They've been suppliers or beverage directors or distributors or vintners or analogists or all of the above or two of the above. Uh, some of the most venerated people in the business. And, uh, of course, you will have fantastic uh, footage and commentary from myself, uh, the great man Dustin Wilson and the great man uh, Ian Cobble and and some other, uh, other peers and friends and colleagues as well. But... Uh, uh, it's about the legends of the industry. So, and look, I'm no legend, so we'll be commenting on the legends. 
<laughs> well, you're working your way up the ranks, man. Trying. Let's go this direction because I think one of your calling cards is you dress very well. I mean, in fact, this might be the only time I haven't seen you in a jacket or with a pocket square. So, but hey, it's a Friday afternoon. We're just doing a low key conversation, sampling some good wine here. So we are. <laughs> so let's speak to that because I find that it, financial services, same thing. It's all about that first impression. How do you carry Absolutely. yourself? So let's rewind a little bit. Where did that come from as far as how you dress, how you carry yourself? Because you always dress very, very well. And then what has that done for maybe your image, your persona inside of the wine industry? What's that created? Yeah, yeah. Fantastic. Uh, and, and thank you for that. Look, my, my father was immaculate. He was impeccably dressed. Uh, he, he's still alive, thankfully. But growing up, I just saw a man who wore Lucchese boots every day. He always had a two-inch cuff. Uh, he learned that when he was in the Marine Corps overseas. He always had a beautiful two-inch cuff. He always wore uh, suspenders, even though he wasn't a, a big guy, he didn't have a belly. But his thing was just, you know, suspenders. And always a beautiful three-piece suit or a two-piece suit. I just grew up with my dad wearing pinstripes and window panes. He wasn't the pocket square guy, but he was a bow tie guy. He was a tie guy. And he always had on a beautiful cover, you know, in the Marine Corps, the covers. So he always had on a beautiful cover. And I, I learned that from my father. You know, look, I'm not a boot wearer. I do love Lucchese. I do own a couple pair of boots, but I'm not a boot wearer. I'm more of a, of a brogue guy. I'm more of a, a, a monk or a double monk guy when it comes to shoes. I do love my two-inch Italian cuffs. But uh, I learned how to dress from my father. Uh, once I moved into the restaurant world, you know, in, uh, the, the, the appearance is the first and lasting impression. You know, I think about a, I think about a lot of athletes. I wish so much that a lot of athletes would dress better, dare I say that, uh, because they have the access and they have the means to all these impeccably fine linens and wools and, and expensive suits and, and, and pieces of haberdashery. I wish athletes would dress better. I know I'm segueing just a bit, but I'll get back on track. I think the appearance, I think the appearance of an individual says a lot. Now, with that being said, the appearance of the sommelier has changed over generations. I mean, think about the millennials now. And even if you're not a millennial, a lot of the old school guys are taking pages from the books of millennials and they're wearing you know, they've got tattoos up and down both arms. They're wearing, you know, T-shirts. They're wearing Chuck Taylors with, you know, skinny jeans with holes. But uh, if I were to go that route, it's all about the shoe and it's all about the timepiece. So give, your, give yourself some things to kind of dress it up or spice it up, if that makes sense. But for me, dressing well has always been a part of my appearance because it says a lot of things about you. It says you, you, you're disciplined. It says you took the time and the care to actually care about what you look like, how you appear and how you present. And thirdly, it, it really says that you have tastes. Individuals that dress immaculately usually have taste in art, usually have taste in business, usually have taste in music, usually have taste in travel usually have taste in otherworldly things that, uh, that may or may not be niched or they may be a part of a niche, but, but, but they care. 
I, I think dressing immaculately or dressing uh, very well put together, it, it really shows you care. It really shows you pay attention. It really shows that you really pay attention to minutia. It shows that you have a discipline in a certain field or a certain craft or a certain area. So uh, I've always uh, said that dressing, if, if, if you will, said a lot about the individual, whether it's the watch or whether it's the shoe you have on or whether it's the cut of the jacket, whether it's a casual jacket or a suit jacket or a dinner jacket or your pants and whether or not that they have a break, of mm-hmm. course, right atop of the shoelace or right atop of the, uh, of the monk strap. It really does say a lot about the individual. And I think, you know, I've done so many CEO meetings and so many events, whether it's Robert Port or Ford or so many Fortune 500 individuals. You look at these guys and gals and they're all so immaculately put together. When they walk into the room, the presence says everything. You automatically know you're going to learn something or a few dozen different things from this individual just by their appearance. Yeah. It's like the spotlight just pops on them when there is no spotlight, right? Absolutely. I'll never forget. There's a, we'll put it in the show notes. I can't think of the title. It's a Dale Carnegie book and it's on, it's not how to win friends and influence people. It's his public speaking book. Mm -hmm. But one of the lines in there, I read this probably a decade ago, was one of his keys to public speaking was dress well. And I read that and I'm like, hmm, why does that matter? And the thought process in the book was, it's not so much about how others perceive you. It's about your own self-confidence. Because you know Absolutely. when you put, on, you put on that suit that just pops or that you walk into the room and you have confidence. And so I think that's sometimes what's missing in financial services. It's not just how does the client perceive you, but how is the actual confidence that you have interacting with clients. And I mean, I remember one time I had a big phone call. I threw on a suit to go do a phone call just because you feel like you're ready to roll. You know, so I think I might have cheesily quoted in the first Psalm film, when you look good, you feel good. Simple as that. Look, no one has to be a Denzel or a Brad Pitt or whomever your guy or your gal is. But uh, honestly, when you look good, you, you just really feel good about yourself to kind of uh, mirror what you just said. It's all about how you feel. Your confidence level is, is raised. Uh your chest is out, your chin is up, your diction gets better, your candor gets better, and you just deliver when you feel good. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I have to tell this story because this is a highlight. And it speaks about the client experience, which a lot of our listeners, that's a big deal in their financial services practice. Which now that I think about it, a lot of our advisors have coffee bars. They need wine bars, right? So a little, they need to host a happy hour. All right, so we, I had the the opportunity. And it it was really a highlight for my wife and I. We had a chance to go to the French Laundry with yourself, with Jason Wise, with Brian McClintock. Just an incredible night. My friend Sean and his wife, Aubrey. Thank you. And so this was my first experience there. And was it your first? I don't remember if you'd been there before or not. Uh, No, that would have been... I only have six pins, clothes pins. You get a French Laundry clothes pin and you still have yours. But that would have been my sixth time only. Six. Only your sixth. Man, you need to step up your game, man. So, <laughs> so, uh, so anyway, we walk in there and this had been after a day of wine tasting and they were taking drink orders. And, you know, I'd heard this rumor about the French laundry being kind of stuffy. Didn't get that impression at all. But I kind of had that expectation going in, right? I had the expectation of amazing food, maybe a little bit stuffy. So we go in, they're taking drink orders. 
And me being a Kansas kid and maybe had one too many glasses of wine in me, I said, do you guys offer Keystone Light? <laughs> and the, <laughs> the waiter like kind of tilts his head to the side, looks at me. Would you like Keystone Light, sir? And now I'm intrigued, right? I'm leaning in. I'm like, do you have Keystone Light? Like, I may actually have Keystone Light on the menu. This is going to blow me away. And I'm like, do you have Keystone Light? No. And he's like, would you like Keystone Light? Like, he wouldn't answer, right? And I was like, no, it's all good. We're going to have some great wine. No worries. So anyway, the dinner proceeds. And about, I don't know, 10 courses in. I mean, it's an ungodly amount of courses they serve you there. Out of nowhere, this bucket of ice down Keystone Light shows up out of nowhere. They carry it out with like, like it was Dom Perignon, right? They carry it out, sit it in the middle of the table. And then in unison, in synchronization, like four waiters reach in, pull them out, you know, crack them and sit them down in front of us on UFC coasters to top it all off, right? And it was just like, we all lost it. And I actually had, I drank my Keystone Light. It tasted good, but that to me was such a lesson. It, number one, it was an amazing memory, but it was such a lesson in the client or customer experience. I will never forget it. And I asked him, I was like, have you guys ever served Keystone Light here? He's like, never. We did PBR one time, never Keystone. So obviously what happened there with that story, that experience, obviously we were both a part of it. So it was fun. But there was an opportunity that was had when I made kind of an off-the-wall request and rather than just kind of brushing it off and you know walking back to the kitchen saying, hey, this idiot from Kansas tried to order Keystone Light and laughing it off, they actually sent somebody out, obviously, grab a six-pack of Keystone Light and made it a story and experience for all of us that I'm now sharing because it was just, wow. It was one of those wow experiences. So doing what you do for as long as you have and being a steward as a psalm, can you share just some lessons from that? Maybe you've done some things like that over the years that financial advisors could take some lessons from and maybe implement in their own business. Uh, honestly, the beautiful thing about it is, you know, it's all about the guest experience. And you can have a guest experience in any field of any business that you may be doing. Look, great restaurants like the French Laundry in 11 Madison Park uh, and, and Laberna Dan. I mean, Laberna Dan has a different color pashmina for every single dress, gown, outfit that may be worn by a woman into the restaurant. And they show up at the table with a pashmina that matches your outfit. So I think it's about anticipating the need of the guest, anticipating the demand of the guest. And of course, every answer is always yes. It's not about the guest is always right, but every answer is always yes. And I think where financial advisors like yourself can take a page out of that book, you've dealt with your clients, your colleagues and peers have dealt with, dealt with their clients for so long. And even if it's a new client, uh, I can only venture to guess that you've probably been to more than a handful of your clients' homes, correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you've seen different things that may be in his or her office, different pieces that may be on the wall, different things that may be centered on different centerpieces or tables, et cetera, uh, just kind of paying attention and uh, paying attention and doing your due diligence to see what little trinket or what little thing you can pick up to say thank you or show appreciation. Uh, there are a lot of things that, that clients can do. I mean, one thing that I do as, as, as the face of a 174 almost year old winery is, look, I take care and I show thanks and appreciation to all of my uh, sommeliers and buyers 
and consumers and collectors and longtime wine directors by, you know, I'll gift them uh, a Penfolds engraved Mont Blanc pen or a beautiful chef's knife as a thank you, as a, I really appreciate your support, your business. I really appreciate you taking the time two months ago to taste 35 of my wines with me and add a couple to your list. It may be a beautiful set of cufflinks. It may be three pocket squares. It may be four colorful hankies that they can put on the inside of their jacket and wipe their brow as they're on the floor opening bottles. So I, I do think the client uh, the client and, and consumer relationship is something that uh, is very important. So yeah, it's good for you to take a page from that book of always being there for the guest or being there for your client or being there for the individual. Uh, I think that's a very important page because again, you just jokingly, I was there, I was sitting right next to you. You jokingly said, oh, what about a Keystone Light? Would you like a Keystone Light, sir? No. Do you have Keystone Light? Would you like a Keystone Light, sir? It's all about taking care of the guest, of the client, in whatever colloquial joking fashion uh, that may occur. You know, you've got guys who, you, even if it's something as simple, Brad, as buying your top client uh, three different color left hand or right hand golf gloves, posting them in the mail with a wonderful letter and saying, hey, go go get them next week. I heard you've got a big turn- tournament coming up and we spent a lot of time together last week. Go get them. Here's three different colored gloves for you to pick from when you're out on the greens. So I, I do think that is in very it's very important because what it does is, yes, it it shows attention to detail like dressing. It shows that you care like uh, it shows that you have some discipline. So uh, I would definitely take a page from that uh, that French laundry book that we all experienced. Yeah, that was a fun evening. Big lesson there, too. All right, my man, it is Friday. And so I don't want to have you just cooped up in your office. So if you don't mind, I'll just, we'll wrap it with a few rapid fire questions here. And you got it. How long have we been on, man? It's been good. I, I, I think it feels like we're 20 minutes in. I think it's the wine, man. I think <laughs> it's been a good And I've, I've opened the 407, so I hope that you're drinking Ben 407. I switch wines. All right, I'll switch. I've got a backup glass. So what's your vote? The 28 or the 407? Well, look, because, uh, you know, like a parent would say, I'm not, you are, uh, you know, I don't have a favorite kid. The Penfolds wines are, are, are like my kids. You know, we make a lot of wonderful brands. We're almost 174 years old, uh, shortly approaching our wonderful 175th anniversary, uh, Vintage 19. And the beautiful thing about the wines that we make Ben 407 is a wonderful Cabernet that we first made in 1990. I adore it. Ben 28, the wonderful Kalimna Shiraz we first made in 1959. I adore it. Our flagship Grange, first made in 1951. I adore it. But I adore them all for different reasons. I love this Cabernet because it's really the expression of the great state of South Australia. It's a wonderful expression of the limestone coast, which is a cool maritime climate. So you get all these wonderful... uh, profiles and this bright lifted fruit uh, from from Kunawara style Cabernet Sauvignon and Limestone Coast Cabernet. So I love them both for different reasons. I will put, obviously, Australian Cab does not have the name brand that a Napa Cab has. I I would say that. This is is beautiful. This is good. I agree. 
It's a favorite right now. I'll say that. Been 407. I want to wrap here with a few questions. I'm going to start with one. Actually, one of my clients gave me that I loved. And this will be a fun one for you. Maybe you've answered it before, maybe not. So this is from my buddy Shane out in California, Newport Beach. So if you're ever out there and want to pop some bottles, look him up. I'm in SoCal in a couple of weeks. I'll look him up. Okay. He would love it. His question is like, you got to ask Dylan this. It's your last meal on earth. What wine and what meal are you pairing it with? Woo! Last meal on earth. Wow. I have answered this before, but times change. Life changes. Days change. Uh, right now, I would say my last meal on earth would be cacio e pepe. Just a wonderful, simple Italian pasta dish. A little bit of black pepper, Parmesan cheese, olive oil, and, 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 and pasta. Bucatini, whatever you want to choose. But, you know, cacio e pepe is the name of the dish. And it would probably be, honestly, any vintage of, uh, any vintage of Monfortino Barolo. Any vintage. Doesn't matter. Tell us about that wine. Most people... Oh, look, look, clear. look. The Conterno family. Uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful single vineyard, single site, single place. Even though the vineyard has been uh, added to and it, it's a little different today. But Monfortino is uh, one of the world's great wines. And it's, it's just... It's, it's a splendid wine from Barolo made from the Nebbiolo grape variety. And to be very honest with you, any vintage, whether from the 60s, whether from the 70s or the 80s, I am quite okay with it. Well, anytime you feel like sharing a bottle, man, let me know. You got it. I'll fly out. What's the best value wine that right now, I mean, I'm sure you've tasted a lot of bottles, but right now, and I'm guessing Penfolds is a great brand, but let's go even outside of Penfolds. Best value wine for the money that you can think of. Best value wine for the money, I'll go outside of Pinfolds first. I would probably say uh, Cru Beaujolais. Uh, Cru Beaujolais is incredibly hot. We touched on it in a second Psalm film. Uh, I spoke a bit about it. My good buddy Brian McClintock, your good buddy, uh, talked about some of his favorite producers, and Beaujolais has gone insane since that has, has been said by Brian. I mean, wow. But we've always loved Beaujolais. I've always loved Beaujolais. But Beaujolais Cru, best value right now, it's got... It's got the it's got the familiarity of Burgundy. It's got the history of Burgundy. It's got the honestly, I think it's got the cachet of Burgundy. It just thankfully doesn't have the prices of Burgundy. So you can get wonderful wines from Rainy or uh, Moulin Avant or Chena or Margon from uh, Beaujolais that are just mind blowing. Thirty five, forty five, fifty five, some twenty nine ninety nine. I mean. Great bottles. Now, there are some pretty expensive Beaujolais crews out there, $115, $120. But uh, Beaujolais crew right now, incredible value. Uh, coming into my world, the beautiful Pinfolds world that I've been uh, fortunate to be with for seven vintages now. Uh, let's see. Uh, the Maxis wines, named after our uh, first chief winemaker, Max Schubert. Uh, the Maxis wines are very affordable, great value. They're still steeped in the history and the ethos of Pinfolds but they come to you at about that $25 price point, whether it's Cabernet or Shiraz or, or I look, these wines are incredible. And uh, they, they speak to the history of Pinfolds, who's been around since 1844. All right. Favorite book you've ever read or that's impacted your life the most or book you've gifted the most over the years? Book that I've, look, I don't know if I've actually gifted 
I've probably only gifted a couple of books, less than a handful. But uh, the fav- my, my favorite book has got to be has got to be Michael Broadbent's Vintage Wine. Uh, something for me, especially when I was a novice in wine. Look, I've been in this game, I guess, I don't know, 17 years now, and I still consider myself a novice because there's just so much in the world to, to know and learn and drink and study and taste and so much history that's global. Uh, but Michael Broadbent's Vintage Wine, first, second, or third edition, it doesn't matter. But it's a book that really talks about the story to states, the original story to states of the world, whether it be France or whether it be Italy, Spain, Germany, a few are mentioned from California because the book was written a, a while back. Uh, and of course, Australia, Grange is mentioned, of course, the great first gross obviously mentioned, but it really just gives you history and perspective and timeline about all of these great vintages going back to the 1800s and the why and the reason and how they tasted because Michael Broadbent, uh, a wonderful master of wine, I may say, has tasted all of these incredible wines. He's incredibly venerated himself. Uh, I don't want to get his age wrong because Bartholomew, his son, is a good friend. But I would reckon uh, uh, Michael Broadbent is late 80s. He might be 90, 91, but he's still kicking. He's still drinking great wines. And again, his son, Bartholomew Broadbent, is a, is a good friend. But uh, his father, man, is just the mind that this gentleman has on him, anything that he puts on paper, I, I seek, I study, I read, and I read over and over and over. And I've actually gifted that book twice. So there you go. It's your most gift. And it's so hot right now. It's so hot right now that you can't even find that book on like half.com. The book really? is going for 500, 550 because it's so, it's so in demand. It's one of those books that's out of print and nobody can get them anymore, yeah. right? Where, and it where, didn't release it that. It releases yeah. like a $60 book. Yeah. Hmm. Okay, this is a fun one. This is my go-to question lately. What is something you would like to see as absurd 25 years from now? Froze. <laughs> Jesus Christ, please make it absurd. It's absurd now, but it's not. It's really cool. Uh, you don't like wine as a slushy? Frosé, and they call it brosé. I don't know what's happening, but uh, I'd actually rather drink Friesling than frosé. Wow. Look, in South Australia, man, uh, we often, look, it's 39, 40, 41 centigrade in South Australia in the Barossa Valley. It's a hot continent. It's a dry continent. South Australia is the driest state on the driest continent. So it gets bloody hot, right, in South Australia when you're in the Barossa Valley. Look, we take bottles of Riesling and we put them on ice for so long. They they develop like a, a wonderful kind of slushiness in the bottle. And when it's 41 centigrade and you take that screw cap off of that Riesling and you pour it into a glass, my goodness, it is exactly what the doctor ordered at 41 degrees centigrade. That's hot. I don't know if that's 114, 115, 116, but uh, I'd, much, I'd much rather drink Friesling than Frosé. <laughs> Yeah. Rose, hey, a good chilled rosé on a summer day is amazing. I've definitely got a soft, uh, the wine must be kicking in. I have a soft part in my heart for cold rosé. Cheers. Indeed. Cheers, brother. All right. Last question. What's really cool is to see, I mean, you truly are a master of your craft and it's just, Thank you. it's inspiring. I mean, the work that you guys have put in, you, Brian, Ian, it is inspiring. So what is the one piece of advice that you think you could share that's led to your success to this point? 
Uh, the first piece of advice I could share is do not go down my path. My path was my own path. It was a difficult path. I, I made my own way and uh, uh, humbly, humbly, not not in a bragging way, but I, I did it my way, as uh, Old Blue Eyes said, uh, once said, probably said many times. I actually did it my way. Uh, but find a mentor, find several mentors that can help you, usher you, foster you in your said field, whether it's back of house, whether it's front of house, whether it's uh, uh, business, whether it's being a chef, whether it's being a wine director, a director of operations, a beverage director over multiple units, find someone who has done it and done it well and seek their counsel, seek their advice. Uh, stage in restaurants, if you can, become a stagier and uh, maybe go work the great floors of the Little Nell in Aspen, work the great floors of Papa's Brother Steakhouse in Dallas and Houston. Work the great floors of, of uh, Laverna Dan and Danielle and any of the Michael Mina restaurants or, or Canlis in Seattle or the Nomad with all these great individuals that have a history and a lineage of incredible sommeliers and beverage directors and wine directors and now directors of operations. Uh, uh, shout out to my great friend Sabado Cigaria that is the chief restaurant officer for uh, Mr. Danny Meyer. I mean, the sky is the limit. As uh, one of the greats said, uh, the ceiling is the roof. Uh, once you put a roof on your ceiling, you've stopped. And Michael Jordan said that talking to a group of uh, young kids at his flight camp uh, uh, about six months ago. Uh, there is no ceiling. And as you've seen with guys like uh, Ian Cobble, who owns his own business, Dustin Wilson owns his own business, Sabado Cigaria, chief restaurant officer for uh, Danny Meyer. Brian McClintock, who owns his own great business, uh, seek the counsel of those that came before you. And uh, there's no limit. There's no ceiling. There's no roof. Uh, just continue to excel. Uh, my way, I did my path my way. And thankfully, it's worked out very well for me. I've got, I'm fortunate to have a global presence. Uh, I travel the globe, Southeast Asia, UK, wherever, Australia, uh, of course, Canada, South America, Central, Caribbean. It's very fortunate to do all these things, but it, it comes with a lot of uh, it comes with a lot of history. It comes with a lot of studying and a lot of learning and a lot of progressing and a lot of setbacks and a lot of push forwards. And uh, it's been very good. But find individuals that can mentor you and that can look after you and teach you business, teach you P&L, teach you marketing, teach you sales and teach you how to treat individuals, ingratiate yourself. Uh, amongst individuals and just be good to people because uh, the, the, the universe, that energy will return. The universe will give that back to you. Uh, you run across great people like uh, like Brad Johnson. You run across great people like Steve Tish. You run across great people like many other names I can I can name. So uh, it's, it's, a, it's a good world. Just treat it right and it will treat you right in return. D-Len, you're the man. Nah. You are. I just, I... I'm so appreciative you grabbed some time here. This has been a great conversation. And I mean, that last piece of advice on just, I mean, there's others out there that have paved the way. They've been there. You don't have to sit there and pound your head against the desk. I mean, it's no different in financial services. You can do the same thing that you did in the wine world. You can go study under the experts. It's possible. You know, you just have to basically go out and do it. So you that, have to that, pull those coattails. You have to. Yeah. Well, and it takes effort. It's not easy. You got to hop on a flight. You've got to grind, make the connections. But 
that's your shortcut out there. One of, one of my mentors, he basically said, any new thing you're trying to do, if there's a coach you can go out and find out how to do it that's been there and done that, that's the simplest path and that's the one you should follow. And so absolutely, that's, that's what you did, man. So anyway, and, uh, I, I will take this time to just uh, send a special shout to uh, Mr. Uh, Frederick Lindward Dame, of course, Fred Dame, of course, that yeah. you know from Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 uh, and of course, Psalm 3. Uh, Fred Dame, Jay James, Jay Fletcher. I mean, there's so many greats out there. These, these are the individuals that uh, Andy McNamara, these guys, they helped pave the way. So, uh, and many others I could name. I just took a few seconds to call those four yeah. names, but uh, many others that uh, looked after me, Reggie Norito and, and, and the, the, the list goes on. So, uh, you know, those, those are guys that uh, have helped me immensely and still do. Well, I didn't think it would be possible to make a Psalm Legends without Fred Dame. So I had a feeling he would be in there. I have a feeling his sections of the movie will be entertaining because so far, <laughs> every single one has been. Yes, they will. <laughs> well, Dylan, I'll let you roll on your Friday afternoon. I just want to say thank you for sharing your thank wine you knowledge. I can say there's a lot more financial advisors out there right now that have more wine knowledge thanks to this last hour and a half or so. So appreciate it. And uh, until our paths cross again. Cheers. Time to get to the gym. All right. Thanks for checking out the latest show. Here's this week's featured review. This one comes to us from Gene Hammett, who says, great insights to win more business. Get the latest in marketing and business growth. I love that the show is focused on financial advisors. Brad is excellent at pulling out insights that will help you win more business. Gene, thanks for taking the time to give the show a review, man. I appreciate it. I've never shared this before, but early on, I actually considered branching out and making this a podcast for entrepreneurs in general. Luckily, a mentor gave me advice to make sure to focus on the niche I knew best and thought I could bring the most value to. And that's my goal. I try to make sure I'm serving all of you advisors out there on each and every show. And with that in mind, if any of you Blueprint listeners have ideas or connections with someone you think would make a great guest or bring a lot of value, drop me a message out on Twitter. My username is at Brad underscore Johnson. I'd love to connect. And most importantly, I'd love to hear your thoughts. So that's it for this week's show. And for those out there listening in, do me and your fellow financial advisor friends a favor and share your favorite episode with them, whether it's by email or text. Just let them know we're sharing ideas and more importantly, actionable items specifically for financial advisors. I'd appreciate it. And you know, it really helps me impact more advisors out there just like you. So with that, thanks for listening in this week and I will catch you guys on the next show. The information and opinions contained herein are provided by third parties and have been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but accuracy and completeness cannot be guaranteed by Advisors Excel. The guest speaker is not affiliated with or sponsored by Advisors Excel for financial professional use only, not to be used with the general public or in a sales situation.